the thing that CSU has been at for a long time that others don't appreciate is the interconnectedness of things in this world. That, that, you know, yes, we have narrow disciplines that we study and they're in colleges, but I think now there's a greater appreciation that, you know, you change one thing and there's a lot of other things that are going to happen. That sort of ecosystem or systems view of the world is, I think, inherent in, in this culture, uh, thinking about that, not only because uh, it's a mission-oriented practice, uh, get the knowledge out into the community, make the community better, but that understanding of what the community is now is, isn't just about the people in their houses and the buildings. It's about the green space. It's about, you know, the nature around it, what's happening in the climate. And so I, I really think that CSU is uniquely positioned in that ecosystem view of the world and as such is uniquely positioned to present system solutions. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff, And this interview was recorded in October 2022. In January 2023, Dr. Alan Rudolph announced he will transition from his role as CSU's Vice President for Research. We hope you enjoy his reflections on a decade of service and leadership. Today, we're really happy to have Dr. Alan Rudolph, the Vice President for Research at Colorado State University, joining us. So, Alan, welcome and thank you on behalf of the college. We're tickled to have you. Ah, very pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So we, we want to spend some time getting to know you and your perspective. You sit in a unique position. So today we'll be talking much more about the institution writ large and, and the broader vision. But we also want to get to know you. And I think our listeners and, in fact, many of our colleagues, I suspect, are going to find this quite interesting. So we ask all of our guests about their educational journey, the, the how did you get here questions. And these have often ranged. In fact, we had one talking about a second grade teacher as, as sort of an influence, right? You don't have to go yeah. all the way back to second grade, but, you know, we'd be really keen to hear. We hope that our listeners are a range of folks, but including undergrads who are thinking, I'm not sure I can do this grad school thing and, and maybe yeah. moved by your story. So talk to us about the pre-college days and, and where did you go as an undergrad? What prompted that move? What did you study? These sorts of things. Yeah. No, thanks. Uh, and thanks again for inviting me. It's a great opportunity just to sort of get get to know you and, as you say, uh, share a little bit more about me as well. Uh, so I'm a zoologist by training, and, and you know, I think uh, that's been a very interesting career for me. How I, where I went with that is, is really quite unusual because this is my first academic job. I've not been in a university before. Right. So, um, but, you know, it started for me, like with many in science, I was curious as a kid and, and, and really just excited about nature and I think one of my early influences, which will show my age, was Jacques Cousteau. Oh, sure. Mm. Yeah. A marine biologist. Uh, and we had a rule in our house that you, there was no TV when there was school the next day, but for Jacques Cousteau. So, so, nice. so <laughs> yeah, so marine biology, I actually was, was my first foray into the natural world. And, you know, anybody who's uh, dove under into a coral reef will appreciate you know, all that that has to offer in terms of teaching us about the diversity of life, but also the ecosystem and the dynamics. So very early on, I actually spent my summers at marine biology camps wow. uh, in the Keys. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the first marine biology camp was University of Miami's on Pigeon Key. It was a six-acre island that I lived on for two summers for about two and a half How months. Cool wow. It was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. And uh and so, you know, I, I, as a young kid, my parents, uh, my father was a physician. My mother was actually a professor in social work. So I have some oh, affinity to yeah, social great. work here in the college. And uh, so they were scholars, you know, they, they, they were lifelong learners. And, and, and for me, that was instilled very early as a kid that uh, the world around you is a fascinating place to study. And so I, I did the usual things as a kid, but I also had this nerdy side of, of and I, and I uh, kept marine uh, tanks in upstate New York, far from the ocean, which meant that many of the things in those tanks went belly up. Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, it, those <laughs> kinds of hobbies also force you to understand, oh, you know, I got to maintain the pH in this tank. And so, you know, early on, I, I was sort of introduced to the wonders of nature 
And so, you know, when I went to, I went to undergraduate at Michigan, University of Michigan, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with that, that sort of excitement and ambition. And I had a family full of doctors. So I was thinking, oh, well, I'll be in pre-med, go to medical school, take my dad's practice. And uh, I spent the summers in Ann Arbor, in addition to doing field work in ecology on the brown bullhead catfish, mm. uh, um, which I'll come back to in a minute, <laughs> I, uh, I did take a job uh, in the university hospital and decided then that I wanted to, to really focus in research rather than in, in sort of clinical work. Um, so it, it was, you know, an opportunity to take forks in the road. I, I really had opportunities as sort of a zoologist to take some very unusual positions at, after that through my grad school. So, you know, I did get a graduate degree, a PhD in zoology, and I was uh, early on also exposed to one of these kinds of scientific questions that's still not answered. Is a plant seed alive or mm. is a tardigrade that dries up in the soil and goes into a dormant state, is is it alive? Because you can rehydrate and it goes back to normal yeah. metabolism. But that whole uh, dormant state is still uh, a real active scientific question. What What is uh, the evolutionary process allowed life to adapt uh, to life without water? How yeah, apropos gosh, for right? drought in Colorado. Sure. But but uh, that was my uh, first you know, foray into hypothesis-driven science was to take on a really fascinating question that, you know, still is among us. And uh, also that experience as an undergraduate, and I, I really love what CSU is doing in this regard, was highly interdisciplinary. So I, I was doing biophysics in, in a zoology department oh, that's cool. and uh, studying, you know, well, if this organism dries up, what does it mean for the molecules? And I was interested in mem biological membranes. So a lot of physical techniques applied to a, a life science problem. So I was trained early on in interdisciplinary approaches to science and never looked back. I mean, for every job I took in every different life, government, industry, now academia, that training allowed options to take place in my career, but also an appreciation for the diversity of disciplines in how you approach problem solving. Oh, well said, well said. Yeah. I want to probe a couple of these, and I'm going to straddle both the life and, and academy. I, yeah. we, we have some shared history. So I was born and raised in upstate New York, and I wonder if you ever had a chance to do any lake diving, in, you know, like Champlain or oh, like yeah. Georgia, a different animal than off the Keys, oh, right? Yeah. So tell, just tell us a little bit more about that contrast, and maybe if you have any wow moments from your diving days, I'd love to hear those. Uh, well, the more of the wow, moving, uh, wow moments were definitely in the keys avoiding large, uh, large <laughs> being eaten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just avoid being eaten by that barracuda. But but uh, yeah, that that lake diving in in you know especially uh, it's cold, it's dark, and and you begin to appreciate adaptation at a wholly di whole different level, and so. Yeah, upstate, and, and, you know, I think like you, uh, most people in upstate eventually leave to go find the sun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so at 18, although I went to Michigan, it didn't really, but, but as I my, did my PhD at Davis, California. So I finally got to the sun, but then came back to Washington for many years. But, but yeah, it, it, upstate New York and it, is still a phenomenal place and, and holds many memories. I still have family there, and I, I, yeah, I look forward to going back, but I don't stay long, I have to confess. <laughs> yes. So um, I think I'm hooked on Colorado for sure. I, I want to just follow up on, on the academic end of the spectrum. As an undergrad, did, did you have a moment or a mentor that, that sort of opened your eyes to the PhD thing, or was it always part of your plan? I just know I want to do this. For me, it was always part of my plan. I mean, the you know, when you go to University of Michigan, it's a very big school. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were mentors... But I, frankly, you know, the classes were so big, unfortunately, you don't remember all those. My, my inspirations came before that to drive into science. Now, in my PhD program, the, the mentors I had were already uh, leaders in what was then, you know, not a, a very blossomed field of interdisciplinary work, right? So 
that had both good and, and bad sides, right? Because you're publishing and you're trying to convince authors who aren't necessarily interdisciplinary, I mean, uh, reviewers who aren't in, interdisciplinary. But, but yeah, the, the inspiration for me in science as a PhD student came from my mentors and the PhD, which were also a married couple, which oh, if you've ever worked for, uh, you know, a married couple is in a research lab, that has a set of interesting dynamics as well. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. So tell us what, what your dissertation focused on. We, again, we've got grad students listening. and Yeah, so uh, it focused on... Uh, Soil invertebrates that completely dried out, and we discovered a new sugar, triolose, which is a disaccharide of, uh, that has unusual properties. It al essentially allows you to replace water, and it, and it fits in as a sugar and bonds to surfaces where water normally bonds. So what, what happens when things dry out is membranes fall apart, and of course membranes are the barrier that keeps life intact, the mm -hmm. cell, right? In the absence of water, those membranes fall apart, but in the presence of triolose and other sugars that organisms small um, survive complete dehydration. I mean, you can take these organisms and you can't measure any water at wow. all. Isn't that remarkable? But you add water back and they resume life. And one of the more startling demonstrations during my PhD was we put some of the, I, I was in uh, working on soil dwelling nematodes, which are small worms. Um, you could put them into an electron microscope which is a very harsh environment. It's got an X-ray beam and <laughs> low vacuum. Take them out of the microscope and rehydrate them, and they would come back to life. So, you know, there's always these uh, interesting theories still, did these come from the cosmos, right? Sure. You know, in other words, yeah. they're able to survive cosmos-like. So that was my PhD, was life without water. How, how, does, how did biology adapt to life without water? Plant seeds are like that too, but, uh, but yeah, so... Uh, that that was a really fascinating start to science, right? Because there's so I'll many say. aspects of things you can answer around that question. I have to ask you a contemporary question. We think life without water, and we think manned missions to Mars and what have you, right? So it's things coming, not that it ever went away, but it's it's front and center all sure, thing, right? And so, you know, are there lessons from your dissertation just a couple of years ago that, that we might uh, <laughs> be able to translate well, it, into? It, it's funny, when I uh, left my dissertation, I actually took the lessons learned and, and set out on a translational career with those principles. So I left my PhD, became a National Research Council postdoc, and I was assigned to the Naval Research Lab, which is the first national lab in the United States founded by Thomas Edison in mm -hmm. 1916. And they hired me to freeze-dry blood. No kidding. Because, you know, working for the Department of Defense, especially on the medical side, obviously blood is one of the things that they use uh, a lot. And if you think about it, blood is kind of an interesting substance. We still collect it from each other. We can't even make it in the lab yet, but we can't store it for more than a month in the fridge before we have to toss it out mm. and, and platelets, which things that stop bleeding even less. So I was hired there to take the principles of triolose and from nature and apply them to a labile system, uh, in this case, a membrane called a liposome that encapsulated hemoglobin, which is the protein that carries oxygen. So a simple system, but modeled essentially on how nature survived dehydration. Wow. And that began a whole career that I would still reflect on today and even in my current role of being inspired by evolution in nature and design principles from zoology and put them into practice, scale them in. And that usually involves engineering of some kind. Sure. But the bio-inspired engineering bug came early from that kind of work. Yeah, and there's, it seems to me there's this central element of, of how systems or organisms adapt right, to environmental extremes. It's uh, always been an interesting question to me, right? And yeah. it relates back to your diving days. And <laughs> you know, if we get somebody planted on Mars, they're, they're going to have those very same questions, obviously. So, so you had an interesting path, man. I, I, you know, I'll remind you and disclose to others. I was on the search committee when Alan was hired, right? And so, so I've appreciated, you know, I got to look at his CV before I met him. These sorts of things. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, we, we have the pathway that um, still sort of DoD related, the DARPA work, yeah. but you have an entrepreneurial spirit as well, and I'm interested in hearing a little bit about both. Yeah. So uh, I got a, an, an MBA mid-career. Actually, the Navy sent me to get the Thomas Edison program sent me out to get an MBA. Cool. So I, the Navy funded my MBA. And actually, I was motivated to get that degree because I had worked on this blood project for 
almost a decade I was at the Naval Research Lab, mm. and they wanted a product. Sure. They wanted, you know, they wanted to scale this thing. So I was uh, interested and started down the path of how do we get this into human clinical trials, right? So we did all the preclinical work, wrote the applications for human clinical studies, and the Navy decided to shelve the project for the Army's solution, which was cross-linked hemoglobin. So instead of putting it inside of a cellular envelope like nature does in sure. a red blood cell, the, the the other alternative, and this is late 80s, early 90s, so we're dealing with HIV. You know, there was a real motivation to get a blood substitute out there, a stable one, maybe that could be freeze-dried. They were cross-linking me. So I, I lost a, a, a race to get something developed. And so that further motivated me to understand, well, was it because I didn't articulate the business plan well enough? or didn't, you know, So went off to business school. In the meantime, I was recruited by DARPA. So I, I had a seven or eight year intermittent path, which there's some very interesting stories in there to come back to. But to answer your question about entrepreneurial, I, I left DARPA in 2003 and started a company that is freeze-drying platelets that is still in Rockville, Maryland called okay. Cellfire. Okay. Mm. And it's now in phase two clinical trials. So it's 20 years since that company started it's showing you how yeah. long it takes yeah. to get something. But but that, after getting my MBA in 96, I was just going to DARPA. And so I went to DARPA and, and I, that was really a valuable experience because with DARPA, I was actually able to seed new ideas, but also new companies. Yeah. So I got to observe, well, how do you do this? And, I, and you know, I had at least the, the title MBA that said <laughs> you should know how to do sure. this. But yeah, in 2003, started that company, went out and raised venture capital. For our listeners, because I often take for granted our acronyms that are so common to us, tell our listeners what DARPA stands for. Oh, yeah. Uh, DARPA stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was an agency started in 1958 when Sputnik went up, mm -hmm. which was the Russians' first uh, space flight into orbit. And frankly, we were surprised technologically. No, no cell phones. All we knew all of a sudden, the Russians are up in space. So Eisenhower started an agency whose mission today is still the mission it was then, avoid technological surprise. Mm -hmm. And so I was the first zoologist they ever hired. In fact, they, wow. didn't, they didn't really know what this was. We had directors that would get up in audiences and sometimes important people were there and they say, we even have a zookeeper. So, but, but, you know, that, that uh, experience of taking an interdisciplinary life sciences experience into an agency like that, avoiding technological surprise, there, there are some amazing things that went on during that time. And it was really a valuable part of my career. So yeah, went from this government lab into a government agency and that, that transition also was a big one in my life because I left the bench after 10 years, sure. yeah. 100 papers, 15 yeah. patents. You know, I, I'd, I'd really led a very large research group for a decade or more and then decided, you know, I really was going to cross that line, leave the bench and start to manage and invest in science, ideas and people. Great. Now, one of the entrepreneurial pieces, if I'm remembering right, uh, was linked to uh, World Cup exercises right and so yeah. tell us more about this because i thought that was pretty darn cool well yeah when i got here it was at the tail end of a era so one of the programs that i started at darpa just at the turn of the century was called brain machine interfaces and uh what it became clear the the, the program really was based on a series of investments i started making for the government at darpa in increasing the interface between the living and the non-living system. So could we collect more data at that interface? And neurons are a great place to do that because, sure. you know, 10 to the 11th neurons in the brain and they're firing at, at millihertz frequency. So tons and tons of data. But as as you may know, the, the ability to get that data was in, in the Nobel Prize was given in the 90s around something called patch clamp, mm -hmm. which is you take a single electrode and you stick it into a neuron and you measure the signals coming off of that. Well, one neuron, you know, and in fact, many of the antidepressants are developed based on patch clamp changes, measurements changed in a single neuron. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we started investing in multi-electrode interfaces where you could now sample 
thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of neurons. You're still way off from 10 to the 11th, but you can then get into regions where there's codes. So we were very interested in the cortical region of the brain, which is very active in things like movement. And so we developed brain-machine interfaces with multi-electrode arrays, first demonstrating in animals that lost the ability to use their limbs that they could use cortical thought to drive peripheral devices like prosthetics. So we did this in rats and we did this in, in non-human primates. And then the World Cup was the first demonstration, although we didn't do it with an implant, we did it with an EEG at a very uh, visible site, obviously, Sao Paulo, Brazil, 2014 at the opening ceremony where we had a paraplegic kick the opening ball out onto the pitch for to open the world games strictly by mind, using brain signals didn't move to send that signal down to a prosthetic set of legs, which kicked the ball out onto the field. So now this has grown this field of brain machine interfaces uh, into other peripheral devices, like for blind people with glasses and on the retinal. Um, and so, yeah, that was a great example of taking your skills of your training, applying them into a new area, which DARPA allows you to do. They they bring people in and and they you know they ask you to go after a really hard problem and do it in ways that normally you're not able to do when you're at the bench. Um, so we were able to invest in this and, and a few other areas that you know really were transformational. Now I want to just take a moment to remind our listeners about the range of the imaginative work that we've talked about in the last 20 minutes, right? So <laughs> right. we're talking about PhD work on soil-borne nematodes, yeah. carbohydrates that, that sort of play the role of water in some ways to help organisms survive uh, you know, the absence of water. Now to brain-machine interfaces that, that allow individuals who, who could not normally walk under their own control to control sort of exoskeletons and so, so the, the most basic, in some ways, questions to the, some of the most important applied questions. But that's phenomenal. That, that, that range of work is really quite interesting, and I, yeah. I, I applaud you. You know, you look back at some of this and you just say, you were, I was fortunate to be in that place at the right time and, and have the opportunity. When they bring a zookeeper into an agency <laughs> like that, they, they <laughs> turn a turn, tune of lows, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. crazy <laughs> things can happen. And, and you know, it, it really is gratifying to be involved in that kind of mission-oriented mm -hmm. science as well. You know, I mean, I love the discovery stuff of the PhD side, but part of my 17 years with the DOD was protecting the lives of these people who, quite frankly, were taking their own life at risk for the benefits of the freedom that we often take Indeed. for granted. Yes. Well said. Yes. So that was a compelling mission, and I think that's a very attractive thing that brought me to, to CSU as a land grant. You know, it, it, I think mission-oriented science is a very compelling uh, thing to really drive people into. You've anticipated my next question. So I want to talk about this transition. How, how did the VPR job here get on your radar screen? What, what brought it to your attention? What, what appealed to you about the possibility to, to come to, to Fort Collins? If you knew about the climate, maybe that had something to do with it. But talk to us about the transition here. Well, uh, the first thing I'd mention is uh, my first trip to Fort Collins was in the 60s uh, when I visited Will Schwartz, whose bust is over in Griffin Hall. Will Schwartz was on the faculty here for 55 years, I think, maybe 58. That is remarkable. And uh, he was one of my favorite uncles. And uh, so Will was a violinist. He came out here from New York, a Long Island trained boy. And uh, I think in 1949, you didn't come fly out for interviews. So I wonder, <laughs> whether, I wonder whether he got, just got on the train and said, take me to Fort Collins. Uh, but but uh, so... I knew the community. Now, I, I also knew my own uh, interests were always strongly based in science, rigorous science and rigorous discovery. Everything I've done has been based on, you know, an appreciation, if not a participation in that. And so I knew at some point in my career I would be back touching that in, in newer ways. And, and you know, I, I'm also... We're, we're an interesting generation, right? Our parents had one job. Mm -hmm. And I think students today, they say, you know, the average student coming out of a campus will have 10 to 15 different jobs over the course of their career. 
I've had maybe five or six, but even those transitions were, were interesting and, and sort of people were like, hmm, what is he doing now? Uh-huh. But so when I looked at, uh, you know, knowing that I was going to be back in, in some way near science, the, the idea of coming back to the academy was very attractive. I didn't know when I was going to do it. Sure. And, and, in, and in fact, the timing wasn't my choice because uh, I had 27 years in D.C. And that's, that was long enough because uh, I had great experiences there. But I, and this is also, I think, worth noting is that sometimes you, and I, I was of that ilk to take jobs that probably in hindsight I probably shouldn't have taken. So I was, you know, elevated to running large agencies with lots of people, management. And, and I discovered that e- either this wasn't for me or wasn't the right time because, frankly, the last job I had was to run um, the country's biodefense program mm-hmm. to prevent pandemics in 2013. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! And and you know I've I've seen PowerPoint presentations of what we've lived through for the last three years for 25 years, mm-hmm. and so those of us who have been working in this field and many others knew this was possible. But also from knowing what bad people were also thinking about in the Department of Defense adversarially, that it either was going to come ne- through Mother Nature, and we still don't know about COVID, or it was going to come through, you know, bad people doing bad things or accidents in labs. But it was frustrating because the country uh, at that time and, you know, wasn't prepared to proactively invest. And so I decided I'd had enough of big government. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it was time for me, and I started looking around, and uh, I think I got called up from CSU to say, would you be interested in applying for this job? Was that Hank? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Gardner. virtual friend Hank Gardner. Who's yeah. In the and Hank EPR worked with me at DARPA when he was over, when he was a major up at the Army lab that he ran. Mm-hmm. So I knew Hank, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, would you be interested in this job? I said, you know, I know Fort Collins. I'll throw my name in the hat. And the next thing you know, here I am. So you've been here for seven, eight, nine, nine. Oof, man, time flies when you're having fun, huh? Yes, it does. <laughs> are, are there particular problems that you think CSU is well positioned to address as an institution in terms of our broad research agenda? I'm, I'm interested in your. You know, the, I, I absolutely do, and and you know, the more I've, time I've been here, the more you actually see that potential and. Uh, it, it's driven at the heart by the culture, which is highly collaborative. Um, and, and resource-constrained environments often are that way. I mean, you know, you, you put that kind of resource constraint over people, and they will naturally come together. So there's a bit of that culture here. But, you know, the, the thing that CSU has been at for a long time that others don't appreciate is the interconnectedness of things in this world. That, that, you know, yes, we have narrow disciplines that we study and they're in colleges, but I think now there's a greater appreciation that, you know, you change one thing and there's a lot of other things that are going to happen. That sort of ecosystem or systems view of the world is, I think, inherent in, in this culture, uh, thinking about that, not only because uh, it's a mission-oriented practice, uh, get the knowledge out into the community, make the community better, but that understanding of what the community is now is, isn't just about the people in their houses and the buildings. It's about the green space. It's about, you know, the nature around it, what's happening in the climate. And so I, I really think that CSU is uniquely positioned in that ecosystem view of the world and as such is uniquely positioned to present system solutions. You know, there is no one thing that's going to solve the ills of our society. It's going to be a multi-dimensional approach, and people understand that system approach, and I think CSU is so well positioned for that. I agree. Mm-hmm. We can riff a little bit on Sue Vandu's visit in the spring. Is this one health perspective? I think is it's one of those things you think, why weren't we always doing this in some yeah. ways, right? Because as you point out, we we are nested within communities and environments, right, that are impacted by the presence or absence of water. We've yep. gone through massive wildfires out here that that don't just burn trees or or people's homes. There's a long lasting knock on impact of those sorts of things, right? And so we have some neat opportunities. We we push the One Health from, from, you know, talking about it, which is important into translating it into action. I'm curious if you see from your perspective two areas where where 
sort of collaborative opportunities are not yet fully tapped. If, if you, again, you, you, we can all get siloed, right? And, and not realize that, hey, there's somebody in this college that's doing very similar things. And if we could move the chess pieces and yeah. introduce some folks, it's always better organic as we always know, but sometimes it's just the introduction and then get out of the way. The jet fuel takes place and you got a new collaborative team going. I'm, I'm curious yeah. about your perspective. No, I, I think there are, you know, the one that comes to mind is the mental health initiative that, yeah. you know, has risen as sort of the silent pandemic behind the more overt pandemic. You know, it's hard to tell. I, I think this has always been upon us. I, I think there's more visibility and talk about it. And and it's, you know, it's in the backdrop of tragedy clo- so close to home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, saying what I said before about the backdrop of fundamental discovery, the next decade between neuroscience and behavior, the convergence is going to be phenomenal. So, you know, there's already an emerging field of social neuroscience. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the work we do here, for example, between you know, equine therapy or com- companion animal therapy, we already know there's a link up of EEG signals between a human and, and an animal in, in that kind of relationship. So there are very fundamental things about mental health of an individual and social support groups that we're going to understand on an entirely different level in the next decade. I mean, I, I think it comes down to biomarkers, signals. It's going to be a, an interesting, both soft and hard science journey. And that really opens up some opportunities for us to come together and change what has been really hard to change. And what's interesting about my background is the Defense Department of 18 to 25-year-olds enlisted has a very similar problem mm. to the campuses across sure. America. Right. And, and because of the demographic and, and to some extent, the stresses of, of that demographic at a time where their brain's developing. So I, I really think that's a great example of something in front of us that if we got ourselves together, it touches every one of us in different ways, whether it's your personal family experience or, or knowing that on this campus in any one year, there will be suicides that we have not prevented. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, to... Yeah. How, how can we be better uh, uh, front of that curve as opposed to sort of being reactionary, right? We, we, you know, we use the term resilience a lot. And I, I think the last three years, I suspect, taught more of us about moving that from the abstract to the very tangible, this notion of, of resilience, trying to get through, you know, life when, when we are circumscribed. We can't do the things we want to do. Travel was a problem or maybe forced to work from home. I can, of course, recall our you know, pandemic preparedness team, right? So, you know, getting together, not in person, unfortunately, right? To right. to do things like um, consider applications by PIs about, can I go back into my lab? Yeah. Right? I mean, just a complete, things we never would have anticipated in a million years. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, again, if you have some perspective about what can we take about the lessons from, from our response to the pandemic? Good things, right? But also, right, let's yeah. we learned that we don't want to do that again. Yeah to inform our non-pandemic approach to the discovery process? You know, one one thing I'd say about that, and I, I'm curious what your reaction is, the, in the response to the pandemic, do you think we moved faster? You know, it's interesting you say that because that's where I often go first. When I, and I've talked to the other research associate deans about this, that it seems to me that one of the lessons we learned is that we can be more nimble yeah. than we thought we were, you know, there was the perception, and it's a large institution, let's be honest with one another, you know, that, that is like trying to do a U-turn on the Queen Mary in some ways, right? And But but I think um, we, we proved that not to be universally the case. And so that, that flexibility, that nimbleness is something I hope we can perpetuate. Yeah, me too. And, and you know, I, 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 we were responsible for the initial response because nobody knew anything. And I, you know, we had at least I, I had a lot of experience of what, what to do. So, you know, I, I, when I first said we're going to climb down 17 manholes and take wastewater three times a day, you can imagine what the administration said. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but to your point, we mobilized opening campus when we didn't have vaccines in the first, in the first year of COVID. We did 10,000 PCR tests in the week of opening campus. And, and, you know, we stood all that up in about a month. We had to, right? We, we had sort of the, the, the virus gun to our head. But, mm-hmm. but um, you wonder, you know, if, if we got our uh, resolve together about to do something, you know, we could 
make major lifts in short periods of time if we have the resolve. Indeed, and, and to do it in a proactive way would be yeah. kind of handy. Of course, I have to take a moment to call out Mark Zabel, of course, because he's a buddy. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, Mark was, was spearheading that effort to ramp up the, the saliva test. And yeah. so, Mark, if you're listening, we, we love you. <laughs> and thank you for a lot of hard work. Yeah. I want to ask your perspective on, on how we might think about pursuing non-traditional sources of support for our scholarship. We, not that we want to forget about the biggies, the NIHs, the NSFs, USDA, of course, and others. But I'm interested in, in uh, your perspective on how PIs, teams, et cetera, might, might broaden our scope for possible sources of support. This can be foundations. It can be philanthropy, et cetera. And I'm, I'm interested in, in yeah. the VPR perspective on that. So uh, six years ago in 2016, when Brett Anderson was the head of advancement, he and I established a new group to fundraise thematically around interdisciplinary themes. There were four people. We had some attrition. But that fundraising group on a per-person basis has come in second to CVMBS. Wow. Why? Because they were able, first of all, they were, they're fundraising around some of the thematic institutes, Energy Institute, sure. Infectious Disease Research Center. But they're thematic, and, and they brought you know, as Energy Institute does or idea, uh, infectious disease, do, you know, they bring multiple faculty across different uh, departments in. So that sort of opened our eyes to thematic fundraising. And, you know, this is a continual sort of drum that we beat and believe that this is a route to non-traditional funding, not, not only for those themes, but in areas that we haven't traditionally fundraise in those channels like graduate fellowships yes. because most of our advancement work has been on the undergraduate scholarship side. Yeah. But as an example, because of the great work our faculty and staff students have done during COVID, we were able to go to the Onshoots Foundation and raise an equivalent gift to what Flint Cancer had been enjoying for the last few years in the translational medicine sure. space. And, and a good portion of that, I think 30 or 40% of that went into graduate school scholarships. So, you know, the experiment of that interdisciplinary thematic fundraising group, and, and we're just now rehiring into it after attrition from COVID, taught me that there are some of these paths. Now, the challenge, of course, is this sort of is a crosswind to the bit of a headwind to the way advancement proceeds on this campus because it's within the colleges. And, and appropriately so, because a lot of it's through alumni of those colleges. I mean, the relationships built industries in those colleges are built at the college level. And this is an area, I think, of opportunity for us to come together around themes and say, there's more than one college doing this. Can we all come together? And does that ask become different or bigger Indeed. as a result of that? Yeah. And we'll, we'll continue the themes discussion because, of course, the RFP for the new TUNES program is our thematic units of excellence. And to talk a little bit about that. And, you know, I'm interested because these, these PRSCs have been around for a long time. And, you know, when we say how do people respond to change, you can, you know, there's all kinds of cliches that, that follow immediately. But we, we've shifted from these programs of research and scholarly excellence to a new VPR funded initiative on, on thematic units of excellence. And I'm, again, would be interested in your thoughts on. Yeah. So uh, the, the PRSC stands for Programmers of Research and Scholarly Excellence. It was a program launched in 1991. So 31 years later, we're finally making a change. Mm -hmm. But it was a program launched. So much for our nimbleness, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Pro a program uh, launched uh, by the state uh, to the R1s across Colorado, so Mines and, and Boulder as well. They since sunsetted the program soon after it was, I think, five or six years after it was launched. And we retained it. So the new program, the Thematic Units of Excellence, after looking with many faculty, many open forum, is really an attempt, again, to recognize excellence. So, you know, Tune has the E in it for excellence. And it attempts to, I think, aggregate much into the thematic sort of vein of, are there themes, maybe fewer of them, three or four, sure. that... Uh, maybe multiple PRSCs will come into yeah. and, and, and uh, form around. Um, we've just gone through a very significant era of strategic planning on this campus. 
where some of those themes emerged, climate, mental health, uh, sustainability. So we, we thought this was a natural uh, convergence of time to sort of say, uh, we've been waiting to sunset this program. The campus is talking about themes. Why not invest in a fewer number of these themes with more resources to elevate this excellence? And, and so another change that we brought is that uh, excellence is not only us telling ourselves what we think we're good in, but what others tell us externally. So uh, there will be external inputs into the proposals that come in around thematic units of excellence. But we're excited. I mean, I I think it's an opportunity for us to come together and and collaborate, much like we said uh, we're good at, and see, you know, if we can identify two or these three of these things in the first cycle, and we'll do this every two or three years. Instead of having uh, 25 PRSCs that are getting $20,000 each, we'll probably have three or four that are getting $400,000. And, and so we'll try that for a while. But, you know, with any change, uh, it's influenced by environmental factors. So we'll have more open houses to explain the program, take some more feedback. The timeline on this is long enough that I think you're allowing for that adaptation. So proposals aren't due till the end of January. Decisions won't be made till March, announced in April. So, you know, we're going to take our time and we're going to listen and, and hopefully get some really good proposals and take turns, which is, I think, another thing hard to do in a constrained environment. Everybody's sort of sure. trying to get to the front to get their ask in place in a constrained environment. Coming together in these themes may allow us to go after some of those non-traditional sources of money. Yeah, or, or position teams for these larger center grants yeah. from NSF or NIH. And so, you know, it's funny to think of $400,000 as seed money, but in, in many ways it's meant to seed ongoing work and not be taken as a gift in per- perpetuity. In right. Ways, right. Go right. and grow. Yeah. <laughs> and then we give other, other people yeah. an opportunity to do that. That's great. So I want to talk for a couple of moments about what Alan does when he's not got his VPR hat on. So, so what do you enjoy? Pursuits? To, and one of these we were just talking about as we walked over here, of course, Alan and I both like things with two wheels on them, right? So Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, one of the attractions of this area is a great cycling area. I'm a, I am a big cyclist. I, I was fortunate in one of those transitions between jobs, I cycled across the country. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that was also a great experience if anyone gets a chance to do that. It took me a month and a half. But, yeah, I, I really uh, find cycling to be very meditative. And uh, I don't tend to dress in, in bright clothes and get in packs like Pelotons. <laughs> but I'm more of the Forrest Gumpian type rider, rider is out there. Uh, you know, better, better turn around now. <laughs> uh, and then music. You know, my roots here in Fort Collins start with music and uh, – I, I took back up music when I got here, and that's uh, it's a, another great salve. I live down in Loveland, so it's a great uh, it's and I purposely picked that area, so it's about twenty miles from campus. So if there's enough sunlight, I can usually commute up here. Uh, sometimes I come the back way in the morning and do the hills up the back of Horse Tooth, good, and then after a full day, I'm usually on the flats on the way home. Get me home. Right. Exactly, with the wind behind me, hopefully. Very good. <laughs> so, so I'm interested in your music. Do you, do, you, do you play? Yeah, I picked up guitar about six, seven years ago. Oh, oh great. The, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I, I played, uh, Will was a violinist, and he had a violin built for me, but, I, but it became clear I wasn't going to play. In fact, my violin teachers asked, thought I should take up the clarinet. You know, I fooled around a lot with uh, the stringed instruments. But, yeah, no, I, I picked it back up when I got out of here. It's a lot of fun. Nice. Good for you. Yeah. So I'm going to flash back now to yeah. you. You're, you're walking the hallowed halls of the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Yeah. Did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine doing what you're doing now? No. Uh, and, and again, I, you know, having been in the three stools of innovation, the academy now having been in government and, and started my own companies and run a company for eight years, I'm extremely grateful for the experiences I've had. And, and you know, I think the, the interdisciplinarity around where I started was the key that allowed many of these doors to open. Yeah. That's great. Again, we we talk about it. It can be a cliche, but it can be meaningful when it's actualized. So if you were able to go back in time and talk to Alan as an undergraduate in Ann Arbor, what what advice would you give him? Don't fear math. 
That's good advice. That's great advice. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I was a biologist, and you know, the biologists are far from the mathematicians and the you know the grand scheme of science. But, but yeah, I I, I think we're a data driven society much more than when I started, and it was hard to see that then. I mean, you know, literally, you and I started when the Apple II yep. book yep. came out, well right? Said. So you know, well I mean, said. so I think that's the advice that that I would have given myself and. And, you know, that's why it's so gratifying to see data sciences blossoming on campuses like ours. These are these are really important skills. No matter what you do, you have to be able to understand how to store, manage, and analyze data. Make meaning of it, right? Yeah. yeah that's yes. so important. I'm curious as well, kind of in the same vein of Matt's question, when thinking about science and research, say that there's a student or even someone who is approaching their second act who is completely intimidated by math and science, you know, what would you tell them and where would you advise them to start? You know, if they're inspired by your journey, which I certainly am, where would you start? You know, the, the, um, the support around science is so multidimensional. So it's not just students, but staff and, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to your, in your question to my DARPA days, because managing science is is an opportunity where I've seen many who don't want to do science or have some fear of, you know, sort of that process of taking an hypothesis, does it work, will it fail, yeah. and getting involved with the production of science. I mean, si- science is a process. Yes, there is the scientist and, and the intellectual drive, but there are a lot of other things that have to happen for discoveries to make sense and make impact. There have to be good writers and there has to be people who understand how to move money and track money. Mm-hmm. So there's a financial underpinning to science. You don't get what you don't pay for in some mm-hmm. ways. So there are many ways to engage in, in and around science that allows you to sort of absorb the more intellectual drive of, oh, I have to be the one who asks the important question, the scientific question. There are a lot of other things that contribute to the answer. And and I think that's a door opening that students should know more about. And there there are actually now uh, programs, masters in management of science and technology. Mm. And I I think those are interesting kind of skill sets because I think it's underappreciated. Most PIs you'll talk to will think, that they are the ones driving the, the enterprise. They're a big part of it, but there's a lot of other things that have to happen for, for success and for the excitement of science to be spread amongst people. And, and they can participate that in, in many ways. Um, and then there are some really fascinating things to pick up, like the VR initiative we started here was an opportunity to bring in people who particularly didn't care about the processor or what was in the headset or, you know, the, the, the actual responses of humans, which are now part of research and VR, but were quite frankly, just artists or, or wanting to represent ideas in science in creative ways. And digital arts is a great example of that, where I think there's crossover areas where science and humanities are now much better engaged. And I think that will draw in people who, you know, are afraid of the test tube, but are more interested in the people who are pouring stuff into it. Right. You know, another critical need is, is this public communication of science, right? We, we saw that certainly in the pandemic in terms of misinformation, misapprehension of what's going on. And that, that's not new. It's a longstanding problem. If we can get people who are gifted communicators may have no interest in a lab coat or, or PPE on a regular basis, right? Or pipettes or whatever it might yeah. be that. It's because it's so critical that we, we communicate not merely to our peers in, in technical journals, but to, to the public about the import of what we're doing. Why does it matter? How might it impact you? Why should we as taxpayers invest in it? These sorts of things. I think it's really essential. Yeah. yeah. Summed up the mission of our podcast. Well said. Well said. <laughs> but we're not done. We're not. No, we're not. I want to close with just one more question. And you've already alluded to this, so I'm really going to ask you just unpack some thoughts. We have this really unique opportunity to work together as a, uh, faculty uh, administrators at a land-grant institution. 
one of the things I've loved about CSU for 25 years is that's not just lip service, right? That that mission is front and center. So give us your perspective on the opportunity to, to work together at a land grant. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, my 17 years of civil service and, and the land grant mission are so close, right? I mean, this is almost like an, an extension of, of that part of my career. Uh, it is so mission-oriented and... and um, I think that passion is more palpable here than in many other land grant institutions I've been in. And and I think that's what we all appreciate. And so, yeah, I really love that part of CSU. You know, what's interesting about that is we have this thing called extension, which is also 106 years old or something like that. And that's such an interesting asset for us. And yet it's, it's an asset that's evolving. Constantly. Yep, well and I think that's an opportunity. I think the, the intent of that asset is spot on. You know, get the knowledge out there, engage with your community, be listening to their problems so you can bring the problem back to solve, not always thinking you know the pro- their sure. problems. Yeah. How that works has been, I think, a really interesting part of my journey in the Land Grant Institute. I didn't know the extension system when I got here. And I'm not sure I, I know it really well now because it's still a bit of a work in progress, things like rural initiative Absolutely. that we're doing. But I love the concept, and, and I think it's a concept that's going to hold in time just for that reason. And, and it's ours to pick up as part of this unique mission and say, how do we do it better? Publishing papers, I, I mean, you know, I know our faculty, research staff, students love to publish papers. Many people in the community don't read those papers. Indeed. The scientists read those sure. papers, yeah. and that's an important thing for us. It's important uh, accolades and recognition of excellence. But it's that community-engaged piece, that extra step that I think our, our researchers take to say, you know, it's great I published a paper, but, you know, what's going on in, in rural Colorado that makes a difference in my world? And I think it's that mentality plus the asset of having a structure like extension and engagement and the, the passion that comes with a land-grant institution that, that's so unique. And, and I think we'll stand the test of time. There are these county nodes of communication all over the state that we can, I think, take better advantage of, right, to disseminate our work. Yeah. That's great. Well, Alan, on behalf of the college, again, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Really enjoyed it. And, and not surprisingly, it was a blast. Really yes. a lot of fun. Thank so thank you. Uh, my pleasure. And thanks for hosting me and having me. And uh, thanks for doing this. I think it's a great asset for your college. A lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Sure. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one and two. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences at CSU, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.